0: Article 4 of the Defence of the Augsburg Confession by Philip Melanchthon Translated by F. Bente and W. H. T. Dow This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Church, Augustana 7 and 8. The seventh article of our Confession, in which we said that the Church is the Congregation of Saints, they have condemned, and have added a long disquisition that the wicked are not to be separated from the church, since John has compared the church to a threshing-floor on which wheat and chaff are heaped together, Matthew 3.12, and Christ has compared it to a net, in which there are both good and bad fishes, Matthew 13.47. It is verily a true saying, namely, that there is no remedy against the attacks of the slanderer. Nothing can be spoken with such care that it can escape detraction. For this reason we have added the eighth article, lest any one might think that we separate the wicked and hypocrites from the outward fellowship of the Church, or that we deny efficacy to sacraments administered by hypocrites or wicked men. Therefore there is no need here of a long defence against this slander. The eighth article is sufficient to exculpate us. For we grant that in this life hypocrites and wicked men have been mingled with the church and that they are members of the church according to the outward fellowship of the signs of the church, that is, of word, profession, and sacraments, especially if they have not been excommunicated. Neither are the sacraments without efficacy for the reason that they are administered by wicked men. Yea, we can even be right in using the sacraments administered by wicked men. For Paul also predicts, Second Thessalonians two four that Antichrist will sit in the temple of God, that is. He will rule and bear office in the Church. But the Church is not only the fellowship of outward objects and rights, as other governments, but it is originally a fellowship of faith, and of the Holy Ghost in hearts. The Christian Church consists not alone in fellowship of outward signs, but it consists especially in inward communion of eternal blessings in the heart, as of the Holy Ghost, of faith, of the fear and love of God, which fellowship nevertheless has outward marks so that it can be recognized namely the pure doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments in accordance with the gospel of christ namely where god's word is pure and the sacraments are administered in conformity with the same there certainly is the church and there are christians and this church alone is called the body of christ which Christ renews, Christ is its head, and sanctifies, and governs by His Spirit, as Paul testifies, Ephesians 1.22 and following, when he says, And gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fulness of Him that filleth all in all. Wherefore, those in whom Christ does not act through His Spirit are not the members of Christ, This, too, the adversaries acknowledge, namely, that the wicked are dead members of the church. Therefore we wonder why they have found fault with our description, our conclusion concerning the church, which speaks of living members. Neither have we said anything new. Paul has defined the church precisely in the same way, Ephesians 5.25 and following, that it should be cleansed in order to be holy. And he adds the outward marks, the word and sacraments, for he says thus, Christ also loved the church, and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In the Confession we have presented this sentence almost in the very words, Thus also the Church is defined by the article in the Creed which teaches us to believe that there is a holy Catholic Church. The wicked indeed are not a holy Church, and that which follows, namely, the communion of saints, seems to be added in order to explain what the Church signifies, namely, the congregation of saints, who have with each other the fellowship of the same gospel or doctrine, who confess one gospel, have the same knowledge of Christ, and of the same Holy Ghost, renews, sanctifies, and governs their hearts. And this article has been presented for a necessary reason. The article of the Church Catholic or universal, which is gathered together from every nation under the sun, is very comforting and highly necessary. We see the infinite dangers which threaten the destruction of the Church. In the Church itself, infinite is the multitude of the wicked who oppress it despise bitterly hate and most violently persecute the word as for instance the turks mohammedans other tyrants heretics and so forth for this reason the true teaching and the church are often so utterly suppressed and disappear as if there were no church which has happened under the papacy it often seems that the church has completely perished therefore in order that we may not despair but may know that the Church will, nevertheless, remain until the end of the world. Likewise, that we may know that, however great the multitude of the wicked is, yet the Church, which is Christ's Bride, exists, and that Christ affords those gifts which He has promised to the Church, to forgive sins, to hear prayer, to give the Holy Ghost. This article in the Creed presents us these consolations. And it says, Church Catholic, in order that we may not understand the Church to be an outward government of certain nations, that the Church is like any other external polity bound to this or that land, kingdom, or nation, as the Pope of Rome will say, but rather men scattered throughout the whole world, here and there in the world, from the rising to the setting of the sun, who agree concerning the gospel, and have the same Christ, the same Holy Ghost, and the same sacraments, whether they have the same or different human traditions. And the gloss upon the decrees says that the church in its wide sense embraces good and evil, likewise that the wicked are in the church only in name, not in fact, but that the good are in the church both in fact and in name. And to this effect there are many passages in the Fathers. For Jerome says, the sinner, therefore, who has been soiled with any blotch cannot be called a member of the Church of Christ, neither can he be said to be subject to Christ. Although, therefore, hypocrites and wicked men are members of this true Church according to outward rites, titles, and offices, yet, when the Church is defined, it is necessary to define that which is the living body of Christ, and which is in name and in fact the Church, which is called the Body of Christ, and has fellowship not alone in outward signs, but has gifts in the heart, namely, the Holy Ghost and faith. And for this there are many reasons, for it is necessary to understand what it is that principally makes us members, and that living members of the Church. If we will define the Church only as an outward polity of the good and wicked, men will not understand that the kingdom of Christ is righteousness of heart and the gift of the Holy Ghost, that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, as nevertheless it is, that therein Christ inwardly rules, strengthens, and comforts hearts, and imparts the Holy Ghost in various spiritual gifts. But they will judge that it is only the outward observance of certain forms of worship and rites. Likewise, what difference will there be between the people of the law and the church if the church is an outward polity, but paul distinguishes the church from the people of the law thus that the church is a spiritual people that is that it has been distinguished from the heathen not by civil rights not in the polity and civil affairs but that it is the true people of god regenerated by the holy ghost among the people of the law apart from the promise of christ also the carnal seed all those who by nature were born jews and abraham's seed had promises concerning corporeal things of government, and so forth. And because of these even the wicked among them were called the people of God, because God had separated this carnal seed from other nations by certain outward ordinances and promises. And yet these wicked persons did not please God. But the gospel which is preached in the church brings not merely the shadow of eternal things, but the eternal things themselves, the Holy Ghost and righteousness, by which we are righteous before God but every true christian is even here upon earth partaker of eternal blessings even of eternal comfort of eternal life and of the holy ghost and of righteousness which is from god until he will be completely saved in the world to come therefore only those are the people according to the gospel who receive this promise of the spirit besides the church is the kingdom of christ distinguished from the kingdom of the devil it is certain however that the wicked are in the power of the devil, and members of the kingdom of the devil, as Paul teaches Ephesians 2.2, 2, when he says that the devil now worketh in the children of disobedience. And Christ says to the Pharisees, who certainly had outward fellowship with the church, that is, with the saints among the people of the law, for they held office, sacrificed, and taught, Ye are of your father the devil. John 8.44. Therefore the church which is truly the kingdom of Christ, is properly the congregation of saints. For the wicked are ruled by the devil, and are captives of the devil. They are not ruled by the spirit of Christ. But what need is there of words in a manifest matter? However, the adversaries contradict the plain truth. If the church, which is truly the kingdom of Christ, is distinguished from the kingdom of the devil, it follows necessarily that the wicked, since they are in the kingdom of the devil, are not the church. Although in this life, because the kingdom of Christ has not yet been revealed, they are mingled with the church, and hold offices, as teachers and other offices in the church. Neither are the wicked the kingdom of Christ, for the reason that the revelation has not yet been made. For that is always the kingdom which he quickens by his Spirit, whether it be revealed or be covered by the cross. Just as he who has now been glorified is the same Christ who was before afflicted. And with this clearly agree the parables of Christ, who says, Matthew 13.38, that the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The field, he says, is the world, not the church. Thus John, Matthew 3.12, He will thoroughly purge his floor, and gather his wheat into the garner, that He will burn up the chaff, speaks concerning the whole race of the Jews, and says that it will come to pass that the true church will be separated from that people. Therefore this passage is more against the adversaries than in favour of them, because it shows that the true and spiritual people is to be separated from the carnal people. Christ also speaks of the outward appearance of the church when He says, Matthew 13:47, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a net likewise to ten virgins. And he teaches that the church has been covered by a multitude of evils, in order that this stumbling block may not offend the pious, likewise in order that we may know that the word and sacraments are efficacious even when administered by the wicked. And meanwhile he teaches that these godless men, although they have the fellowship of outward signs, are nevertheless not the true kingdom of Christ and members of Christ, for they are members of the kingdom of the devil, Neither, indeed, are we dreaming of a Platonic state, as some wickedly charge. But we say that this church exists, namely, the true, believing, and righteous men scattered throughout the whole world. We are speaking not of an imaginary church, which is to be found nowhere, but we say and know certainly that this church wherein saints live, is and abides truly upon earth, namely, that some of God's children are here and there in all the world, in various kingdoms, islands, lands, and cities, from the rising of the sun to its setting, who have truly learned to know Christ and His gospel. And we add the marks, the pure doctrine of the gospel, the ministry, or the gospel, and the sacraments. And this church is properly the pillar of the truth, First Timothy 3.15, for it retains the pure gospel, and, as Paul says, First Corinthians 3.11, other foundation can no man lay, than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ, the foundation, that is, the true knowledge of Christ and faith. Although among these, in the body which is built upon the true foundation, that is, upon Christ and faith, there are also many weak persons, who build upon the foundation stubble that will perish, that is, certain unprofitable opinions, some human thoughts and opinions, which nevertheless, because they do not overthrow the foundation, are both forgiven them and also corrected. And the writings of the Holy Fathers testify that sometimes even they built stubble upon the foundation, but that this did not overthrow their faith. But most of those errors which our adversaries defend overthrow faith, as their condemnation of the article concerning the remission of sins, in which we say that the remission of sins is received by faith. Likewise, it is manifest and pernicious error when the adversaries teach that men merit the remission of sins by love to God, prior to grace. In the place of Christ they set up their works, orders, masses, just as the Jews, the heathen, and the Turks intend to be saved by their works. For this also is to remove the foundation, that is, Christ. Likewise, what need will there be of faith if the sacraments justify ex opere operato? without a good disposition on the part of the one using them, without faith. Now a person that does not regard faith as necessary has already lost Christ. Again they set up the worship of saints, call upon them instead of Christ the Mediator, and so forth. But just as the Church has the promise that it will always have the Holy Ghost, so it has also the threatenings that there will be wicked teachers and wolves but that is the church in the proper sense which has the Holy Ghost. Although wolves and wicked teachers become rampant, rage, and do injury in the church, yet they are not properly the kingdom of Christ. Just as Lyra also testifies when he says, The church does not consist of men with respect to power or ecclesiastical or secular dignity, because many princes and archbishops and others of lower rank have been found to have apostatized from the faith. Therefore the Church consists of those persons in whom there is a true knowledge and confession of faith and truth. What else have we said in our confession than what Lyra here says, in terms so clear that he could not have spoken more clearly? But the adversaries perhaps require a new Roman definition, that the Church be defined thus, namely, that it is the supreme outward monarchy of the whole world, in which the Roman pontiff necessarily has unquestioned power, which no one is permitted to dispute or censure, no matter whether he uses it rightly or misuses it, to frame articles of faith, to abolish, according to his pleasure, the Scriptures, to pervert and interpret them contrary to all divine law, contrary to his own decretals, contrary to all imperial rights, as often, to as great an extent, and whenever it pleases him to sell indulgences and dispensations for money, to appoint rites of worship and sacrifices, likewise to frame such laws as he may wish, and to dispense and exempt from whatever laws he may wish, divine, canonical, or civil, and that from him, as from the vice-regent of Christ, the emperor and all kings receive, according to the command of Christ, the power and right to hold their kingdoms, from whom, since the Father has subjected all things to him, it must be understood, this right was transferred to the Pope. Therefore the Pope must necessarily be a God on earth, the Supreme Majesty, Lord of the whole world, of all the kingdoms of the world, of all things, private and public, and must have absolute power in temporal and spiritual things, and both swords, the spiritual and temporal. Besides, this definition not of the Church of Christ, but of the Papal Kingdom, has as its authors not only the canonists, but also Daniel 11.36 and following. Daniel the prophet represents Antichrist in this way. Now if we would define the Church in this way, that it is such pomp as is exhibited in the Pope's rule, we would perhaps have fairer judges. For there are many things extant, written extravagantly and wickedly, concerning the power of the Pope of Rome, on account of which no one has ever been arraigned. We alone are blamed, because we proclaim the beneficence of Christ, and write and preach the clear word and teaching of the apostles, that by faith in Christ we obtain remission of sins, and not by hypocrisy or innumerable rites of worship devised by the Pope. Moreover, Christ, the prophets, and the apostles define the Church of Christ far otherwise than as the papal kingdom. Neither must we transfer to the Popes what belongs to the true Church, namely, that they are pillars of the truth, that they do not err. For how many of them care for the Gospel, or judge that it, one little page, one letter of it, is worth being read? Many in Italy and elsewhere even publicly ridicule all religions. Or if they approve anything, they approve such things only as are in harmony with human reason, and regard the rest fabulous and like the tragedies of the poets. Wherefore we hold, according to the Scriptures, that the Church, properly so called, is the congregation of saints, of those here and there in the world who truly believe the gospel of Christ, and have the Holy Ghost. And yet we confess that in this life many hypocrites and wicked men, mingled with these, have the fellowship of outward signs, who are members of the Church according to this fellowship of outward signs, and accordingly bear offices in the Church preach administer the sacraments and bear the title and name of christians neither does the fact that the sacraments are administered by the unworthy detract from their efficacy because on account of the call of the church they represent the person of christ and do not represent their own persons as christ testifies luke ten sixteen he that heareth you heareth me thus even judas was sent to preach when they offer the word of god When they offer the sacraments, they offer them in the stead and place of Christ. Those words of Christ teach us not to be offended by the unworthiness of the ministers. But concerning this matter, we have spoken with sufficient clearness in the Confession that we condemn the Donatists and Wycliffeites, who thought that men sinned when they received the sacraments from the unworthy in the Church these things seem for the present to be sufficient for the defence of the description of the church which we have presented. Neither do we see how, when the church properly so called is named the body of Christ, it should be described otherwise than we have described it. For it is evident that the wicked belong to the kingdom and body of the devil, who impels and holds captive the wicked. These things are clearer than the light of noonday. If the adversaries still continue to pervert them, we will not hesitate to reply at greater length. The adversaries condemn also the part of the seventh article in which we said that, To the unity of the church it is sufficient to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Nor is it necessary that human traditions, rites, or ceremonies instituted by men should be alike everywhere. Here, they distinguish between universal and particular rights, and approve our article if it be understood concerning particular rights. They do not receive it concerning universal rights, that is, a fine, clumsy distinction. We do not sufficiently understand what the adversaries mean. We are speaking of true, that is, of spiritual unity. We say that those are one harmonious church, who believe in one Christ, who have one gospel, one spirit, one faith, the same sacraments, and we are speaking therefore of spiritual unity, without which faith in the heart or righteousness of heart before God cannot exist. For this we say, that similarity of human rights, whether universal or particular, is not necessary, because the righteousness of faith is not a righteousness bound to certain traditions, outward ceremonies of human ordinances, as the righteousness of the law was bound to the Mosaic ceremonies because this righteousness of the heart is a matter that quickens the heart. To this quickening human traditions, whether they be universal or particular, contribute nothing. Neither are they effects of the Holy Ghost, as are chastity, patience, the fear of God, love to one's neighbour, and the works of love. Neither were the reasons trifling why we presented this article. For it is evident that many great errors and foolish opinions concerning traditions had crept into the Church. Some thought that human traditions were necessary services for meriting justification, that without such human ordinances Christian holiness and faith are of no avail before God, also that no one can be a Christian unless he observes such traditions, although they are nothing but an outward regulation and afterwards they disputed how it came to pass that God was worshipped with such variety, as though indeed these observances were acts of worship, and not rather outward and political ordinances, pertaining in no respect to righteousness of heart or the worship of God, which vary according to the circumstances, for certain probable reasons, sometimes in one way and at other times in another, as in worldly governments one State has customs different from another. Likewise some churches have excommunicated others because of such traditions, as the observance of Easter, pictures, and the like. Hence the ignorant have supposed that faith, or the righteousness of the heart before God, cannot exist, and that no one can be a Christian without these observances, for many foolish writings of the Summists and others concerning this matter are extant. But just as the dissimilar length of day and night does not injure the unity of the Church, so we believe that the true unity of the Church is not injured by dissimilar rites instituted by men, although it is pleasing to us that, for the sake of tranquillity, unity, and good order, universal rites be observed, just as also in the churches we willingly observe the order of the Mass, the Lord's Day, and other more eminent festivals. And with a very grateful mind we embrace the profitable and ancient ordinances, especially since they contain a discipline by which it is profitable to educate and train the people, and those who are ignorant, the young people. But now we are not discussing the question whether it be of advantage to observe them on account of peace or bodily profit. Another matter is treated of, for the question at issue is, whether the observances of human traditions are acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God. This is the point to be judged in this controversy, and when this is decided, it can afterwards be judged whether to the true unity of the Church it is necessary that human traditions should everywhere be alike. For if human traditions be not acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God, it follows that also they can be righteous and be sons of God who have not the traditions which have been received elsewhere. That is, if the style of German clothing is not worship of God necessary for righteousness before God, it follows that men can be righteous and sons of God and the Church of Christ, even though they use a costume that is not German but French. Paul clearly teaches this to the Colossians 2.16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Likewise two, twenty three twenty three 23 and following. If ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have, indeed, a show of wisdom in will, worship, and humility. For the meaning is, since righteousness of the heart is a spiritual matter, quickening hearts, and it is evident that human traditions do not quicken hearts, and are not effects of the Holy Ghost, as are love to one's neighbour, chastity, and so forth, and are not instruments through which God moves hearts to believe, as are the divinely given word and sacraments, but are usages with regard to matters that pertain in no respect to the heart, which perish with the using, we must not believe that they are necessary for righteousness before God. They are nothing eternal, hence they do not procure eternal life, but are an external bodily discipline which does not change the heart. And to the same effect, he says, Romans 14.17, the kingdom of god is not meat and drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the holy ghost but there is no need to cite many testimonies since they are everywhere obvious in the scriptures and in our confession we have brought together very many of them in the latter articles and the point to be decided in this controversy must be repeated after a while namely whether human traditions be acts of worship necessary for righteousness before god there We will discuss this matter more fully. The adversaries say that universal traditions are to be observed because they are supposed to have been handed down by the apostles. What religious men they are! They wish the rites derived from the apostles be retained. They do not wish the doctrine of the apostles to be retained. They must judge concerning these rites just as the apostles themselves judge in their writings. For the apostles did not wish us to believe that through such rites we are justified, that such rites are necessary for righteousness before God. The apostles did not wish to impose such a burden upon consciences. They did not wish to place righteousness and sin in the observance of days, food, and the like. Yea, Paul calls such opinions doctrines of devils, 1 Timothy 4.1. Therefore, the will and advice of the apostles ought to be derived from their writings. It is not enough to mention their example. They observed certain days, not because this observance was necessary for justification, but in order that the people might know at what time they should assemble. They observed also certain other rites and orders of lessons whenever they assembled. The people, in the beginning of the church, the Jews who had become Christians, retained also from the customs of the fathers from their Jewish festivals and ceremonies, as is commonly the case, certain things which, being somewhat changed, the apostles adopted to the history of the gospel, as the Passover, Pentecost, so that not only by teaching but also through these examples they might hand down to posterity the memory of the most important subjects. But if these things were handed down as necessary for justification, why afterwards, did the bishops change many things in these very matters. For if they were matters of divine right, it was not lawful to change them by human authority. Before the Synod of Nicaea, some observed Easter at one time, and others at another time. Neither did this want of uniformity injure faith. Afterward, the plan was adopted by which our Passover, Easter, did not fall at the same time as that of the Jewish Passover. But the apostles had commanded the churches to observe the Passover with the brethren who had been converted from Judaism. Therefore after the Synod of Nicaea certain nations tenaciously held to the custom of observing the Jewish time. But the apostles, by this decree, did not wish to impose necessity upon the churches, as the words of the decree testify, for it bids no one to be troubled, even though his brethren in observing Easter do not compute the time aright the words of the decree are extant in epiphanius do not calculate but celebrate it whenever your brethren of the circumcision do celebrate it at the same time with them and even though they may have erred let not this be a care to you epiphanius writes that these are the words of the apostles presented in a decree concerning easter in which the discreet reader can easily judge that the apostles wished to free the people from the foolish opinion of a fixed time when they prohibit them from being troubled, even though a mistake should be made in the computation. Some, moreover, in the East, who were called from the author of the dogma audience, contended on account of this decree of the Apostles that the Passover should be observed with the Jews. Epiphanius, in refuting them, praises the decree, and says that it contains nothing which deviates from the faith or rule of the Church and blames the Audians because they do not understand aright the expression, and interprets it in the sense in which we interpret it, because the apostles did not consider it of any importance at what time the Passover should be observed, but because prominent brethren had been converted from the Jews who observed their custom, and for the sake of harmony wished the rest to follow their example. And the apostles wisely admonished the reader neither to remove the liberty of the gospel nor to impose necessity upon consciences, because they add that they should not be troubled even though there should be an error in making the computation. Many things of this class can be gathered from the histories, in which it appears that a want of uniformity in human observances does not injure the unity of faith, separate no man from the universal Christian church. Although, what need is there of discussion? The adversaries do not at all understand what the righteousness of faith is, what the kingdom of Christ is, when they judge that uniformity of observances in food, days, clothing, and the like, which do not have the command of God, is necessary. But look at the religious men, our adversaries. For the unity of the church they require uniform human observances although they themselves have changed the ordinances of Christ for the use of the Supper, which certainly was a universal ordinance before. But if universal ordinances are so necessary, why do they themselves change the ordinance of Christ's Supper, which is not human but divine? But concerning this entire controversy we shall have to speak at different times below. The entire eighth article has been approved in which we confess that hypocrites and wicked persons have been mingled with the Church, and that the sacraments are efficacious, even though dispensed by wicked ministers, because the ministers act in the place of Christ, and do not represent their own persons, according to Luke 10.16, He that heareth you, heareth me. Impious teachers are to be deserted, are not to be received or heard, because these do not act any longer in the place of Christ, but are antichrists. As Christ says, Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets. And Paul, Galatians 1.9, If any man preach any other gospel unto you, let him be accursed. Moreover, Christ has warned us in His parables concerning the Church, that, when offended by the private vices, whether of priests or people, we should not excite schisms, as the Donatists have wickedly done. As to those, however, who have excited schisms, because they denied that priests are permitted to hold possessions and property, we hold that they are altogether seditious. For to hold property is a civil ordinance. It is lawful, however, for Christians to use civil ordinances, just as they use the air, the light, food, drink. For as this order of the world and fixed movements of the heavenly bodies are truly God's ordinances, and these are preserved by God, so lawful governments are truly god's ordinances and are preserved and defended by god against the devil of baptism augustana 9 the ninth article has been approved in which we confess that baptism is necessary to salvation and that children are to be baptized and that the baptism of children is not in vain but is necessary and effectual to salvation And since the gospel is taught among us purely and diligently, by God's favour we receive also from it this fruit, that in our churches no Anabaptists have arisen, have not gained ground in our churches, because the people have been fortified by God's word against the wicked and seditious faction of these robbers. And as we condemn quite a number of other errors of the Anabaptists, we condemn this also, that they dispute that the baptism of little children is unprofitable. FOR IT IS VERY CERTAIN THAT THE PROMISE OF SALVATION PERTAINS ALSO TO LITTLE CHILDREN, THAT THE DIVINE PROMISES OF GRACE AND OF THE HOLY GHOST BELONG NOT ALONE TO THE OLD, BUT ALSO TO CHILDREN. IT DOES NOT, HOWEVER, PERTAIN TO THOSE WHO ARE OUTSIDE OF CHRIST'S CHURCH, WHERE THERE IS NEITHER WORD NOR SACRAMENTS, BECAUSE THE KINGDOM OF CHRIST EXISTS ONLY WITH THE WORD AND SACRAMENTS. THEREFORE IT IS NECESSARY TO BAPTIZE LITTLE CHILDREN that the promise of salvation may be applied to them according to Christ's command, Matthew 28, 19. Baptize all nations. Just as here salvation is offered to all, so baptism is offered to all, to men, women, children, infants. It clearly follows, therefore, that infants are to be baptized, because with baptism salvation, the universal grace and treasure of the gospel, is offered. Secondly, It is manifest that God approves of the baptism of little children. Therefore the Anabaptists who condemn the baptism of little children believe wickedly. That God, however, approves of the baptism of little children is shown by this, namely, that God gives the Holy Ghost to those thus baptized, to many who have been baptized in childhood. For if this baptism would be in vain, the Holy Ghost would be given to none, none would be saved, and finally there would be no church for there have been many holy men in the church who have not been baptized otherwise. This reason, even taken alone, can sufficiently establish good and godly minds against the godless and fanatical opinions of the Anabaptists of the Holy Supper Augustana ten. The tenth article has been approved, in which we confess that we believe that in the Lord's supper the body and blood of Christ are truly and substantially present and are truly tendered, with those things which are seen, bread and wine, to those who receive the sacrament. This belief we constantly defend, as the subject has been carefully examined and considered. For since Paul says, First 1 Corinthians 10.16, that the bread is the communion of the Lord's body, and so forth, it would follow, if the Lord's body were not truly present, that the bread is not a communion of the body, but only of the Spirit of Christ and we have ascertained that not only the roman church affirms the bodily presence of christ but the greek church also both now believes and formerly believed the same for the canon of the mass among them testifies to this in which the priest clearly says that the bread may be changed and become the very body of christ and vulgarius who seems to us to be not a silly writer says distinctly that bread is not a mere figure but is truly changed into flesh. And there is a long exposition of Cyril on John 15, in which he teaches that Christ is corporeally offered us in the supper. For he says thus, Nevertheless, we do not deny that we are joined spiritually to Christ by true faith and sincere love, but that we have no mode of connection with Him according to the flesh. This indeed we entirely deny, and this we say is altogether foreign to the divine Scriptures. FOR WHO HAS DOUBTED THAT CHRIST IS IN THIS MANNER A VINE, AND WE THE BRANCHES, DERIVING thence LIFE FOR OURSELVES? HEAR PAUL SAYING, 1 CORINTHIANS 10.17, ROMANS 12.5, GALATIANS 3.28, WE ARE ALL ONE BODY IN CHRIST. ALTHOUGH WE ARE MANY, WE ARE NEVERTHELESS ONE IN HIM, FOR WE ARE ALL PARTAKERS OF THAT ONE BREAD. DOES HE PERHAPS THINK THAT THE VIRTUE OF THE MYSTICAL BENEDICTION IS UNKNOWN TO US? Since this is in us, does it not also, by the communication of Christ's flesh, cause Christ to dwell in us bodily? And little after, whence we must consider that Christ is in us not only according to the habit which we call love, but also by natural participation, and so forth. We have cited these testimonies, not to undertake a discussion here concerning this subject, for His Imperial Majesty does not disapprove of this article. But in order that all who may read them may the more clearly perceive that we defend the doctrine received in the entire church, that in the Lord's Supper the body and blood of Christ are truly and substantially present, and are truly tendered with those things which are seen, bread and wine. And we speak of the presence of the living Christ, living body, for we know that death hath no more dominion over him. Romans 6, 9 of Confession, Augustana 11. The eleventh article, of retaining absolution in the Church, is approved. But they add a correction in reference to confession, namely, that the regulation headed omnis utriusque be observed, and that both annual confession be made, and, although all sins cannot be enumerated, nevertheless diligence be employed, in order that they be recollected, and those which can be recalled be recounted. Concerning this entire article we will speak at greater length after a while, when we will explain our entire opinion concerning repentance. It is well known that we have so elucidated and extolled, that we have preached, written, and taught in a manner so Christian, correct, and pure, the benefit of absolution and the power of the keys, that many distressed consciences have derived consolation from our doctrine after they heard that it is the command of God, nay, rather the very voice of the gospel, that we should believe the absolution, and regard it as certain that the remission of sins is freely granted us for Christ's sake, and that we should believe that by this faith we are truly reconciled to God, as though we heard a voice from heaven. This belief has encouraged many godly minds, and in the beginning brought Luther the highest commendation from all good men since it shows conscience's sure and firm consolation. Because previously the entire power of absolution, entire necessary doctrine of repentance, had been kept suppressed by doctrines concerning works, since the sophists and monks taught nothing of faith and free remission, but pointed men to their own works, from which nothing but despair enters alarmed consciences. But with respect to the time, Certainly most men in our churches use the sacraments, absolution, and the Lord's Supper frequently in a year. And those who teach of the worth and fruits of the sacraments speak in such a manner as to invite the people to use the sacrament frequently. For concerning this subject there are many things extant written by our theologians in such a manner that the adversaries, if they are good men, will undoubtedly approve and praise them. Excommunication is also pronounced against the openly wicked, those who live in manifest vices, fornication, adultery, and so forth, and the despisers of the sacraments. These things are thus done both according to the gospel and according to the old canons. But a fixed time is not prescribed, because all are not ready in like manner at the same time. Yea, if all are to come at the same time, they cannot be heard and instructed in order so diligently. And the old canons and fathers do not appoint a fixed time. The canon speaks only thus. If any enter the church, and be found never to commune, let them be admonished that if they do not commune, they come to repentance. If they commune, if they wish to be regarded as Christians, let them not be expelled. If they fail to do so, let them be excommunicated. Christ Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11.29, that those who eat unworthily eat judgment to themselves. The pastors, accordingly, do not compel those who are not qualified to use the sacraments. Concerning the enumeration of sins in confession, men are taught in such a way as not to ensnare their consciences. Although it is of advantage to accustom inexperienced men to enumerate some things which worry them, in order that they may be the more readily taught, Yet we are now discussing what is necessary according to divine law. Therefore the adversaries ought not to cite for us the regulation omnis utriusque, which is not unknown to us, but they ought to show from the divine law that an enumeration of sins is necessary for obtaining their remission. The entire Church, throughout all Europe, knows what sort of snares this point of the regulation, which commands that all sins be confessed, has cast upon consciences. Neither has the text by itself as much disadvantage as was afterwards added by the summists, who collect the circumstances of the sins. What labyrinths were there! How great a torture for the best minds! For the licentious and profane were in no way moved by these instruments of terror. Afterwards, what tragedy, what jealousy and hatred did the questions concerning one's own priest excite among the pastors and brethren, monks, and various orders? who then were by no means brethren when they were warring concerning jurisdiction of confessions. For all brotherliness, all friendship ceased when the question was concerning authority and confessors' fees. We therefore believe that according to divine law the enumeration of sins is not necessary. This also is pleasing to Panor Mitanus and very many other learned jurisconsults, Nor do we wish to impose necessity upon the consciences of our people by the regulation omnis utriusque, of which we judge, just as of other human traditions, that they are not acts of worship necessary for justification. And this regulation commands an impossible matter, that we should confess all sins. It is evident, however, that most sins we neither remember nor understand nor do we indeed even see the greatest sins according to psalm nineteen thirteen who can understand his errors if the pastors are good men they will know how far it is of advantage to examine the young and otherwise inexperienced persons but we do not wish to sanction the torture the tyranny of consciences of the summists which notwithstanding would have been less intolerable if they had added one word concerning faith which comforts and encourages consciences now concerning this faith which obtains the remission of sins there is not a syllable in so great a mass of regulations glosses summaries books of confession christ is nowhere read there nobody will there read a word by which he could learn to know christ or what christ is only the lists of sins are read to the end of gathering and accumulating sins. And this would be of some value, if they understood those sins which God regards as such. And the greater part is occupied with sins against human traditions, and this is most vain. This doctrine has forced to despair many godly minds, which were not able to find rest, because they believed that by divine law an enumeration was necessary, and yet they experienced that it was impossible but other faults of no less moment inhere in the doctrine of the adversaries concerning repentance, which we will now recount. End of Article 4